Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host and would be so appreciative if you could support what we're doing here by becoming a patron. It's really easy. Just go to our main page at politicsandreligion.us. That's politicsandreligion.us and click on the patron button. There's one at the top right of the page. There are a couple along the sides on a desktop. Anyway, we love all the support, all the listeners, all the great feedback, having folks refer their friends and family to our program. And our five-star reviews, love those reviews. Keep them coming. We appreciate all of it. And I am also very grateful to be able to introduce our guest today, Caitlin Shess. Caitlin is a writer and author who's studying for her doctorate in political theology, ethics, and biblical interpretation at Duke Divinity School. One of our favorites, as, as a folk, longtime listeners of this program will know. And she has earned her THM in systematic theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. In 2020, Caitlin's book, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor, created quite a stir. Uh, she has also written about theology, politics, and culture, and is continuing to make stirs all over the place <laughs> in outlets such as uh, Christianity Today, The New York Times, Sojourners, several other national publications, and it should be noted as rather prolific on Twitter. I'm a little jealous. <laughs> Jason, Caitlin Chess, I don't know how you do it all. Thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. So at the end of your book, in the acknowledgments, you say, I am who I am because of my family. Can you start by telling us how your family, both your earthly family, and as you would say, your church family helped shape who you are? Yeah, I, um, so I grew up in a, a family of two parents who loved the Lord. And uh, one of the things I'm most thankful for is that both of my parents, um, in ways that I recognize a lot of people in my generation don't have this experience, both of my parents were Christians my whole life and also were really faithful throughout the last few years of political turmoil. They both really um, opened themselves up to questions and to rethinking their positions on a lot of things. And both have really stayed faithful in really important things, but also have changed their mind about other things. And just that witness to me has shaped both my, you know, own questions and answers in this particular moment, but also my desire to be the kind of person that can remain faithful on those foundational things, but that can even sometimes learn things from their kids. <laughs> like it just takes incredible humility and faithfulness, I think, to go through the last few years. They have, I have a younger sister. So two, you know, millennial age kids trying to push a little bit on some political questions and ask some really deep theological questions. And I grew up with two parents who were open to that and really 
faithful to scripture, faithful to their church communities and, and instilled a lot of that in me. And then, as you said, um, one of my favorite things to talk about when it comes to family is that I have my kind of nuclear family I grew up with, but my family in the church is in a certain sense, a more real family. I love how many times in the gospels, I was just literally reading this morning, uh, in Mark when Jesus's mother and brothers are waiting for him outside of a gathering of disciples. And he says, you know, these are my mothers and brothers and sisters, the people who are, um, faithful to God and working with me. And so that's been hugely formative in my life. I grew up in a lot of different churches. My dad is in the military, so we moved constantly. So I went to a lot of different churches growing up. Um, and like a lot of people had difficult things happen and theology, I was taught that I wish I hadn't been, but I also had faithful Bible study leaders and other adults in my life growing up that were really formative. And then as an adult, you know, I spent the last few years in Dallas working at a church that was deeply painful in some moments and, and really kind of traumatic in some insignificant ways. But through the course of that time, part of the reason I described it that way in the acknowledgements was that I had dear, dear friends who both um, were with me when I was kind of flying high and having a great kind of the, the kind of experience you would want to have in a church where you felt like you belonged and you felt loved. And then people who were a part of that church when things became really difficult and some really awful things were done. I had people who were the church to me, were my family to me when I really needed them. And that has shaped both my interest in remaining really connected to the church, even as I'm kind of doing academic things, but also has really shaped my desire to think politically rooted in the church, to think about what it means for us as a community that is more real in some sense than other communities we belong to, but to have our witness outside of the church be really deeply shaped by our formation in the church. Yeah. You know, someone brought up to me an imaginary exercise of having a conversation with our 12-year-old selves. Uh, I posted on Twitter, I'm trying to follow in your lead and just have interesting, thoughtful conversations online. But I'm curious, are you someone that was always in the process of questioning and in, for, in the process of formation? Or what would the, I'm just imagining the 12 year old Caitlin, like, would, would there be some things where 12 year old Caitlin would look at who you are today and be like, what are you thinking? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I tell people this a lot, but it's something that I just, I didn't remember about my childhood until recently. And it so describes kind of my journey. Um, I have this really strong memory of being probably 12 or 13, maybe sometime in middle school, going to this youth conference. And I was having a really difficult time. We had moved somewhere recently. I wasn't fitting in a youth group. I was not cool. And the youth group was very cool. It had lots of musicians and like, I just was not fitting in. I was having a really hard time and went to this youth conference and had a really transformative experience. Like felt like I encountered God in a way that I never had before and felt like I had faith in a way that I think I had had before, but I hadn't experienced it or I, I really desperately needed it in that moment. And it was this really transformative experience. And I spent the next year with all the you know fervor coming out of this event, I decided I was going to read through the Bible in a year and I was going to keep a journal where I wrote down every question that I had as I went. And it you have was to go like, to a second notebook. <laughs> oh, hundred percent. It was so many questions. Like I, and I, and I think looking back personality wise, I am an inquisitive person and I want to figure things out by questioning. Like I was a debater in college. I love picking something apart and not just to pick it apart, to put it back together, hopefully, but I love thinking about things that way. But I remember having a Sunday school teacher when I brought some of these questions to her, which to be fair was, I'm sure overwhelming <laughs> to be like, here is hundreds of questions. Could we start talking about them? But her response, and again, she was probably so young and had been trained to think this way, but 
she, I remember her saying something like you, we don't question scripture. So what you're doing is not good. We don't question scripture. Oh, wow. And putting that journal away for a while. And then having a moment later in seminary where I realized what like joy and faith could be involved in asking those kinds of questions. So I think I always kind of had that bent, but I definitely didn't necessarily grow up in church context where that was welcomed. And it was kind of a journey of figuring out on one end that it's okay to ask questions. And then on the other end, having a lot of experiences in seminary now in my doctorate in churches over the last few years, where I understood how devastating it could be to be really stuck in questions. And it gave me a lot of appreciation for the fact that I haven't been since I was probably in middle school, haven't been in that kind of desperate place of wanting faith and not having it, having my questions be really devastating and like foundational questions. How do I even know God is real? What am I doing with my life? Like, I feel really thankful now to know there is something different about either not asking any questions or being completely like desperately mired in questions that there's something really beautiful about the place that I have found myself by the grace of God, where I'm really faithful and joyful in my question. Like there's, there's um, some assurance that no matter how many questions I ask, I keep finding better and better things about God and learning how to practice doing that, especially with young people, which is what I spent the last few years in Dallas doing that is a joy. And it's a very different thing than kind of being in that desperate place. Yeah. I'm smiling because I, I grew up, uh, I, I don't know if I told you, I grew up in an observant Jewish home. So, mm. you know, if you're not, not only questioning, but <laughs> suffering with your questions, you're just not trying hard <laughs> enough. <laughs> so I'm very much at ease with that suffering and that yeah. questioning, but yeah. um, that's where, that's our happy place, if you will. But I'm curious about your decision. So kind of walking through your, again, your formation and your education, I'm curious about your decision to go to Liberty. First of all, mm -hmm. there's not a lot of folks who went to Liberty undergrad and ended up at Duke Divinity School yeah. <laughs> for, their, you know, for their doctorate. So I'm curious, what were, what were some of the decisions that led you to go to Liberty for undergrad? Yeah, so I had uh, gone to public school my whole life, um, which when I went to Liberty, that became this like very cool, rebellious thing about me because very few people there had gone to public school. But I had gone to public school my whole life. And I really, when I was thinking about college, wanted to go to a Christian school that became important to me. And I really wanted to do policy debate of like a particular kind of debate that is really technical and fast paced and involves a lot of research, which at the time I just thought, oh, I love this thing. Now I look back and I'm like, that's so you. Like your personality <laughs> has really been pretty similar the whole time. And Liberty is one of the very few Christian, like confessionally Christian schools that also has a really rigorous policy debate team. They had a lot of funding for it. I, I got most of my school paid for doing that. And honestly, at the time, I think if I had known more about Falwell, Jerry Falwell Sr., and the moral majority, I don't know that I would have had a lot of problems with it at the time. I you know, grew up in a military family that was a pretty traditionally conservative Christian kind of family. But I also didn't know a lot about that when I came, came to Liberty. I wasn't very aware of it. I don't think I would have had a problem with it if I was. And then I was, so I was at Liberty from 2012 to 2016. And so in the course of those four years, what started out, I mean, I remember getting a tour of one of the buildings on campus before I started and the tour guide saying, we're sort of moving away from the Jerry Falwell legacy. Um, they were about to build a library where they were going to name it the Falwell Library. And he said, this is our last thing. We're kind of moving away from the moral majority legacy. Oh, man. So that was how I started. Yeah. And then by 2016, when I ended, you know, my last two years were constant media on campus, constant, you know, politician, Ted Cruz announced his candidacy at Liberty. Uh, Trump came and spoke there. Bernie Sanders came and spoke there. There was lots of, you know, constant, especially conservative media 
pundits or politicians at different levels speaking at liberty just constantly. And I think even people who were supportive of the position of our president at the time, Falwell Jr., were overwhelmed by it. Like it was just too much all of the time. They were sick of their school being in national news for things that were really controversial. Um, so by the time I finished, not only had I seen this trajectory across my time at the school, I had been doing policy debate for four years and I had been interacting with people from very different backgrounds with very different commitments. I had been reading widely. I think it's funny that now there's this like big fight about critical theory among a lot of Christians, especially evangelicals, when like that was a big part of college debate. So a lot of, you know, freshmen at Liberty were reading tons of critical theory to kind of understand what we were doing in our debates. So I look back and I think I really, I not only learned a lot while I was at Liberty and the kind of contrast between what I saw politically at Liberty and what I was learning was so intense that it kind of forced a, a crisis there. But also I was just in community with a lot of other people who probably had notebooks like I did in middle school. <laughs> like they were the kind of people that were asking lots of questions and, um, and we're open. We didn't all agree on lots of things, but we were trying to figure things out together in a way that was faithful and good. And so all of that experience led me to the time I finished in a very different political place than when I started. I still went to a fairly conservative evangelical seminary, um, partially because I didn't know the world of seminaries. I thought I was going to go to law school and very last minute decided to go to seminary instead. And so ended up there and had a great experience in lots of ways. But by the time I finished, I thought my theology and my practice and so much of my experience has been so shaped by evangelical institutions. I want to be in a different kind of environment, a place that is still at Duke confessionally Christian and mattered to me that we're thinking about the church and we're thinking about practice, but also a place where I really disagree with a lot of my colleagues and classmates and um, I'm exposed to lots of things that I never would have been exposed to at Dallas or at Liberty um, if it wasn't for the debate team. So I, I look at it now and pretty much everyone here when they find out where I came from is pretty shocked, but I always try, I always say that I think it's a really good, like I wish everyone could, I know everyone can't, but I wish everyone could have the experience that I'm having of being in just very different environments, especially for people interested in theology and politics to think, to see the good and the bad and the ugly in both places and to realize that some of it's very similar in ways that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. Yeah. I find some of the most compelling persuasive voices to be ones that can hold their own in other environments, you know, the work of, yeah. of George Will, for example, in the Washington Post or David Brooks in the New York Times or Pete Weiner, you know, now in the yeah. Atlantic and the New York Times, folks like that really, so, so being in different environments and being able to have dialogue with folks that have very different points of view than you, you have yeah. is a very healthy thing. But you said, you said something that really caught my attention. You said you initially thought you were going to become a lawyer, but you changed your mind pretty late in the game uh, during undergrad. So what happened there? <laughs> yeah, honestly, a big part of it was I wasn't really sure. I mean, I, I thought I wanted to go to law school, but I didn't really have a vocational plan. I wasn't really passionate about anything. I look back and I think, you just liked school. And that makes sense. You've kept doing lots of school, like that fits. But that didn't seem like an option at the time. I just kind of was trying to figure out what was next. And I, my mom was working at a church um, in Virginia, a few hours from where Liberty was. And so as the kid of a minister, right, you get roped into doing things you didn't intend to do. And so they desperately needed uh, summer camp counselors for like church camp. And I got kind of forced into doing it and had 
what was so surprising to me, I had such a great experience. Like if you had told me you'll really enjoy spending a week at camp with middle schoolers, like doing weird camp games and talking about the Bible, I would have been like, that is not me at all. (laughs) And I had such a good experience. Like I had so much fun and I had a meaningful relationship with these young girls and just kind of, it really exposed me to the idea of doing ministry in a way that prior to that, as a woman, I hadn't really seen. My mom worked in churches growing up, but it was always kind of in whatever role she could find. We never went to churches that had really significant leadership roles for women. And it wasn't seen as like a possible career path. Like I didn't know anyone who was going to, I didn't know anyone at the time going to seminary who was a woman. So it was the first time in my life that I seriously thought I should maybe consider doing this. That just wasn't an option for me before. And maybe this has always been, I can look back now and see my notebook full of questions about the Bible or the moments in small group when I was the one that wanted to really kind of get into this passage that everyone else thought was boring. I look back and I think it makes sense, but I also think if I had been a man throughout all of that, there probably would have been people along the way who said, Hey, you should really consider going to seminary, but I wasn't in a context where that was really an option for women. And so I think that weird experience that I got kind of like forced into by my mom really just opened my eyes to that as a possibility. And I even went into seminary, not thinking, you know, I had no idea what job (laughs) that would end up with. Again, I wasn't in churches where I could really picture that. Um, And it wasn't until I took my first theology class in seminary that I thought, Oh, whatever I can do to just keep doing this is what I want to do. So that's, that's really cool. I'm curious. So you mentioned your parents have begun to open up their own assumptions and you've obviously gone through an evolution in thinking. Yeah. Are you in touch with uh, some of your friends from Liberty? And uh, I'm I'm curious, bigger picture, whether it's you or your parents, if you're getting pushback from folks that you grew up with or went to undergrad with, are your parents getting pushback from folks they've been doing church with? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's kind of a strange thing being in the military. My dad's still in the military, so they still move all the time. Um, I think if they were in one place, they would be getting a lot more of that than they have um, because they'll just have, you know, continued relationships with people who watched, who knew them before they sort of, you know, had this evolution and then know them after, but moving a lot makes it a little harder, I think, because you're just around new people and they're choosing new churches when they go to a new place and kind of finding a new community that might fit them a little bit better. Interestingly enough, I, I don't think I've gotten a lot of pushback from people I knew at Liberty because to be honest, most of the people that I knew at Liberty either went through a similar experience where they really questioned a lot of the way that they grew up thinking about both theology and politics or a lot of them, to be honest, are not Christians anymore. They had a really difficult time reconciling what they experienced at Liberty with the faith that they grew up with. Um, and so when I when I think back to most of the people that I knew, they kind of fit into one of those two camps. There are some people who really, they found their people at Liberty and they have gone at, you know pretty far right politically. Um, but that is a pretty small minority compared to most of the people I know who either um, are still wrestling with what their faith means in the context of the history of the moral majority and religious right, or a significant portion of them are, are not not believers anymore. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I live in a valley where master's college or master's university mm. now. So there are a lot of similarities there and the, the students that might be drawn to master's, similar reasons that a lot of students might be drawn to a liberty. And there's a fundamentalist uh, tendency there. Yeah. And, and a lot of the churches were planted either, you know, explicitly by master's college folks or folks who were educated there, definitely influenced there. Uh, my kids went to a Christian school that definitely had that vibe. I began to see over time that some of its primary identifiers 
had nothing to do with classical Christian education. Mm -hmm. uh, even asking the question, like, who are we? Are we, are we primarily like anti-Obama, anti-Democrat culture yeah. war, you know, or are we like, are we really grappling with scripture? So not so coincidentally, a lot of kids that my kids grew up with, same, you know, you could say the same, either got very much more hardened in their views um, and not just like conservative views, because it's not the conservatism of um, Burke and William F. Buckley mm -hmm. or, or um, you know, other great thinkers of, of uh, conservative thought, but like it, it's a Trump, like it, it's a very different thing. So a lot of folks just left the faith altogether. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's interesting that you brought it up. Kind of along those lines, you asked a great question at the top of a piece you wrote for Christianity Today. This was in July of 2020. So not much was going on in our country. At that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, seriously, you, you asked a really profound question. What story am I buying into? So if we think about, you know, what we're talking about now, what was going on at that time, depending on how any one of us might answer that question, our interpretation of different events can be really different. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that lens and maybe give us some examples of how folks might see what's happening quite differently? Yeah, um, I yeah I have found that a really helpful question, especially I spend a lot of my time talking to either college students or to pastors um, who are trying to figure out either college students trying to figure out what to do with their faith and politics and what's how you know who've grown up in a lot of uh, turmoil on that front or pastors who are similarly trying to figure out what to do with a usually pretty divided congregation who are really struggling with a lot of those questions. And for both of them, I think our impulse is often to just think about propositional beliefs, to think, okay, the people who disagree with me think you know, X, Y, Z, and I think this opposite thing, whether it's they believe this economic policy will fix our country and will support, you know, the most vulnerable people, or, and I think this other economic policy will fix the problems and support, you know, the most vulnerable people. And typically what we, why we struggle, I think one of the reasons we struggle so much to have those conversations is because we think that we're just talking about propositional political or theological beliefs. And typically we're not, we're talking about stories that have drawn our emotions into play. People will often ask me like, I can't have a conversation about politics with my family member or this person in my church without it getting heated. And I think sometimes we just assume that that's how things are. And we don't interrogate why in this particular area of our lives, we find it so difficult to have productive conversations. And I think it's because it involves this story that we've bought into that our emotions have been drawn to. We don't just buy into a story because we like you know, the details of the story. We love something or we fear something or we uh, feel loyal to a certain group of people or we feel fearful of a certain group of people. And so those stories can be really powerful on a level, on an emotional level that we don't often interrogate and that can cause us to, to have a lot of those really deep um, divisions. One of the things, this just came up the other day talking to some people, one of those stories is often a story of being the embattled minority. And so a lot of particularly white conservative Christians in America will have told themselves and their communities are telling a story that says, we once were kind of safe from the liberalizing forces, from the sexual revolution, from whatever's coming for our, you know, our children, probably. And now we have lost that status. And so whatever we need to do politically to regain it is probably justified because we're in this status of embattled minority. 
that is a story that people who are outside of that community think is just utterly ridiculous. <laughs> like yeah. it just doesn't match factually with what they believe about the world. And so it's hard then, because if I'm having a conversation with someone who believes themselves to be an embattled minority in our country, it makes sense that what they think might be justified politically isn't what I think might be justified politically. If I think actually you are pretty safe and secure and actually your children aren't being indoctrinated and actually, then I don't think this political choice that you have made or this justification for a political choice that you have made is worth it because the stakes don't seem as high to me as they seem to you. The story that you have bought into is existential. Like we can't, you know, give anything. We can't compromise because we are the embattled minority in this account. And so it's easy, I think, for people, and I'm around now a lot of people who see conservative white evangelicals believing that story and just think, well, that's just nonsense. Like that's just they are factually incorrect about the world. And I understand the impulse to do that because in lots of ways they are factually incorrect about their position, but it doesn't provide a productive space for a conversation for us to either think that other people are reacting emotionally and buying into a story and I don't have emotions and I have not bought into a story about the world. And it isn't helpful for us to act as if that the power of that story isn't significant because it is quite significant and it will cause us to have those differences of opinion that make it really hard for us to have a productive conversation. But if you and I, you know, someone who's bought into this story and someone who's bought into a story that says, actually, you are the most powerful and you are oppressing people and this is the kind of role you play politically, we can't figure out why we don't agree on why this bill in Florida dealing with sexuality, we have such, not only do we have different ideas about what that bill means, but it seems like our whole context for this conversation is not the same context, but we don't interrogate that very often. And so the conversation stops on the level of specifics about this bill, which are important specifics to talk about, but we've missed the story that's animating so much of what's happening and the emotions, the fear, the loyalty, the desire. And then we just get angry and don't continue to talk to each other about it instead of, especially for, for pastors or people who have some kind of spiritual authority or guidance in people's lives to recognize that, that if that's the register in which we're having those conversations, that's also a spiritual register for us to be actually speaking into and interrogating. And that takes a lot more work conversationally than we usually are willing to put into those kinds of things. Yeah. What you're saying makes so much sense. I, I've been able to speak with friends who, I mean, Trump is such a prominent figure over the last five, six years. So you know, but his his 2020 campaign, what, what was central to it is he's fighting for you, you know, yeah. and like, I, and I, when I first heard it, I'm like, fighting for what, <laughs> you, you know, like, um, but but also it caught me thinking like, oh, that makes sense. Because a lot of times I, I remember very early when I became, a, I became a Christian when I was 29. So this is 2000. Mm. And not too long after that, uh, W won the White House. I think it was 02 that they got both houses of Congress. And I, I began to pick up on this aggrieved minority uh, disposition that a lot of my friends yeah. at church had. I'm thinking, y'all got W, you got both houses, like <laughs> aggrieved minority, I don't get it. Yeah. And, and that's been pervasive throughout my time yeah. as a Christian. The funny thing is that I have like conservative views, fiscally conservative views. I'm a small business guy um, and like socially libertarian views. So I should fit in with the, the Republican Party, but just the fact that I would ask questions about what we're reading in scripture. You know, one, uh, there was one study where we were looking at Leviticus 19, and a lot of the guys that I was hanging with were, were very anti-closed border immigration. I'm like, mm. hey guys, did y'all read the end of the chapter? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's, it's saying something very, not that, you know, I, I wasn't trying to advocate for open border policy, but I'm like, sure. the Bible seems to be, <laughs> you know, 
man, that got kicked. It, it was as if I, I became the guy that was there to steal their guns and kill Christmas, yeah. you know? <laughs> so just asking those questions. Yeah. Um, but I, I love so much of your, so much of your work, what, what you, what you deal with, you're asking um, frequent questions. So uh, there was a piece in um, Christ and pop culture. Uh, you said young Christians like myself frequently bemoan the political legacy we have inherited, yet we are not as focused as perhaps we should be on the legacy we are creating. That's such an interesting awakening, if you will. Mm -hmm. Many of the particular issues will pass, but the language and frameworks we use now will outlast us in ways we may not intend. So could you specify some of the language and frameworks you're referring to? But, but also, I, I'd love to know if you have any prescriptions, like what do we do about it, you know? Yeah. Hey everyone, my name is Jenna Spinelli and I host and produce a podcast called Democracy Works. It's a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. If you enjoy this podcast, I think you'll like our show too. Every episode examines a different aspect of what it means to live in a democracy. Sometimes it's big picture issues like neoliberalism or demagoguery, and other times it's more on the ground topics like ranked choice voting and how local news deserts are democracy deserts too. Some of our previous guests include Jonathan Haidt, Andrew Sullivan, and even Wynton Marsalis. So I hope you'll check out Democracy Works. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. Part of my concern in, in, in those lines that you just read, which I have forgotten about, <laughs> but that I, yeah, no, that's, that's something that I'm really deeply concerned about is very similar to what I just described this mentality where we can, because of how um, easily we buy into stories in which things that we cherish are being existentially threatened we can end up justifying all sorts of things or using language that, that has that existential tenor to it that in the moment feels like it might be necessary. And yet we forget that part of what we are seeing in the legacy we inherited is that aggrieved mentality, that you know minority that is being oppressed that needs to, if we continue to kind of shape our political imaginations by language and by kind of that existential threat, um, emotional kind of register, that will outlive us. And so, suddenly we might end up looking more like the people that we thought we were the opposite of than we actually intended. Not only because we can end up switching our positions on some political questions, but keeping the framework and the language really intact, but also because sometimes when we define ourselves too much by the things that we are against that we grew up with, again, we can end up replicating those same, those same problems. Um, I see that when it comes to I just had a conversation a few weeks ago with someone who was horrified that a fellow friend of ours had been critical of Biden on Twitter. And they were like, do they not understand the fight that we're in? Like, do they not get that this is like for the, the sake of our democracy, for the continuation of our country, for the, and it just, it was so heartbreaking to me because I had watched this same person say, it's that kind of mentality and language that allowed my parents to justify anything Trump said or did because we were existentially threatened. And if he is the better of the two options, then we have to, we have to justify. We can't criticize while also supporting, we have to justify. And he was horrified by that with his parents' generation. But when it came to this moment and the media that he was consuming that was telling him a certain story about the world and honestly profiting from creating fear in him, he had gotten to a place where someone criticizing 
Biden on his border policy was suddenly not something we were able to do because we needed to support the person who was keeping our democracy in line. And it was amazing to me that we didn't see the similarity in the language across generations. In terms of prescription, I mean, one of my kind of, what, something I feel like I end up sounding like a broken record on because I say it all the time, is that so much of especially evangelical Christian political thought and engagement over the last hundred years has been so focused on the national level. And it often boils down to, we have this kind of pragmatic mentality that says, the biggest decisions get made at the highest level. And so we need to keep our focus on the Supreme Court, for example, the amount of evangelicals that will constantly talk about what we can justify for the Supreme Court. Or we'll think about kind of the allure of, you know, showing up in the White House, having access to the president, and we can have so much focus on the national level. I think one of the most productive things that a lot of younger Christians can do to try and chart a better path forward is to root themselves really firmly in a local community, become very involved with the very boring stuff of politics in their particular community, showing up at a city council meeting, writing letters to their senator, going to a rally for something really boring. <laughs> like, yes, there's all of these really important things that we can kind of see represented, overrepresented sometimes in media. But then there's also one of my favorite examples of this is um, there's a short film Film on YouTube called The Ordinance, where a group of churches in Texas were trying to get uh, statewide legislation passed to put restrictions on payday loan places that were really exploiting people in their communities. And they couldn't get a statewide bill passed. It was just politically untenable. And at some point, instead of continuing to kind of keep the focus on the state level, they moved towards trying to get local ordinances passed. And they built coalitions between like a Catholic church that was across the street from a Baptist church. Like they had deep theological disagreements and cultural differences. And they thought, what would it mean for us to pass a really boring, <laughs> like we're dealing with the minutia of what level of, of rate we can justify in a particular kind of uh, place. It's boring and it causes us to just like write letters to local politicians and go door to door and get people support. But it had this really tangible material effect on vulnerable people in their communities, and they were willing to kind of put that work in. And I, I think not only would that root us in actual love of neighbor, not love of neighbor that gets abstracted out to the point where I think I'm voting on behalf of my neighbor, but it's a neighbor that I don't actually know, and I might assume what they need, and I have no idea. It forces me to be really involved with my actual neighbor, but it also, I think, forms us in the regular rhythms of compromise, but also continuing to be faithful, even when we have to make kind of strategic compromises, figuring out when to do that and what that looks like. And that happening on a, a smaller local level, I think could shape us into better people able to do that at a national level when the moment arises or the opportunity arises, but keeping us really focused on not just thinking about what's happening nationally with the media or what's happening with, with kind of ridiculous amounts of power and abstracted ideas that we can't really actually understand but to start us off thinking, what would it look like for me to go to my actual next door neighbor? I live in a neighborhood full of people who are in a pretty low income level. For me to go to my actual next door neighbor, have a conversation about what would help them in our community and doing whatever I can as someone who in my community has relative power and privilege compared to people who live near me and advocating on behalf of them, that I think would not only produce something tangible and good, but would also form us into the kind of people who I hope would be able to continue to do that at increasing levels of power. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes so much sense because I, it's clear that a lot of the worst behavior is, uh, is online where folks have the luxury of, of hiding behind a, mm -hmm. a fake name, uh, a completely false, um, what do you call it, profile. Yeah. And there's no, there's no humanity there. And, and, and when we do show up often to those uh, city council meetings or you know, board of ed meetings, 
we're more informed by stuff, as you put it, that's abstract from what those actual conversations are. So when someone is yelling and screaming about don't teach my kid uh, CRT, a third grade teacher is like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like that doesn't enter into our curriculum. So it's um, when we're with each other, we have to figure out yeah. how to live with each other. And we also have to acknowledge each other's humanity. And instead of just firing off a, a, a nasty tweet, if we say it in person, we risk the possibility of getting punched in the nose, which I think is <laughs> that, that health, <laughs> that, that's healthy in a way. So um, it, it, so I, I keep on going back to your work because there's so much of your work where I'm like, I got questions. So there was a, a blog post uh, in June of 2020. Again, you know, just this, this moment in time yeah. um, was uh, sparked a lot of questions of ourselves, of our communities and was clarifying in a lot of ways. Um, but this this one piece, uh, you were engaging with a piece that Kevin DeYoung wrote. You said, I agree with DeYoung that what matters much more, you were talking about laws, elected officials, policies, is the growth, education, moral development, and spiritual maturity of the family. I just disagree that this family must be the nuclear family. It's something that you were um, you were talking about a little bit before. Mm -hmm. I'd love to discuss that that point, but what strikes me throughout much of your writing is that you're much more concerned with being the body of Christ than I'm trying to sell or impose some notion notion of like, I got great kids. They're, they're all the captains <laughs> of the soccer team and straight A's and you know, they, they're, they're good looking, you know, mm -hmm. is that, do you know, you, you understand what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I think it helps that both the 2016 and the 2020 election, I was really deeply involved in churches on staff in close relationship with people in churches that disagreed with me profoundly mm. <laughs> about the election. And, and I was both in 2016 and 2020, pretty new to being apart from my nuclear family. You know, I was, um, I don't know, 21 or something in 2016. I was only a few years older, obviously in 2020. And so it was this moment in my life where I did feel so strongly that these are my, like, this is my family. Like, these are the people I am closest to. This is the one place in my life where I have intergenerational. I have little kids that I adore that I teach Sunday school and that, you know, will climb into the pew next to me if their mom loses hand of them, you know, during the service. And I have people my grandparents' age who really care about me and saw something I posted on Facebook about racism that they didn't like and they want to talk about it <laughs> in the foyer of church. Or I have people who are like my parents' age and who are sometimes, I was lucky enough at my church in Dallas to have people older than me again who were wrestling with things and wanted to ask a young seminary student what books they should read or how they should, you know. So that context of family and again, partially just reading scripture and feeling like there's this constant refrain in the New Testament of, yes, the way the Old Testament talks about family is still very important. It's just that the bounds of that family have completely changed. One of my other favorite places that this happens is when, I forget which gospel it's in, when um, a woman says to Jesus, it's, I think uh, it's Luke. in that piece, in Luke. Yes, yeah. of course it is. Luke loves women and does this all the time. Um, <laughs> where a woman says to Jesus, you know, blessed is the woman who birthed and nursed you. And he says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of the Lord and obey. And I've thought about this like continually over the like last few years, partially in terms of at the time when I first read it, I was thinking about it in context of him possibly having women disciples near him. He had women that traveled with him and who were his disciples that could have been right there and seen this moment of kind of a cultural understanding of what was valuable in a woman and him really radically changing that. But I've also thought about it a lot since because of the way that there's very similar language when Elizabeth is speaking to Mary, when she's carrying Jesus of like, blessed are you among women. 
there is a sense in which she's blessing her, this young pregnant woman who's kind of fulfilling in some sense of social expectation. In other ways, very much not a young unmarried woman who is pregnant by, you know, suspicious form um, is praised not only for being pregnant with the savior of the world, but I think in the context of the story that we've heard at the beginning of Luke about who Mary is, really Elizabeth is praising her for hearing the word of the Lord and obeying, taking on this really terrifying task for herself. And so how often in scripture that that sense of family is reoriented, it's ironic then that American evangelical Christians in the 20th and 21st century have made family values, and especially quite often, as you described earlier, a fear of what will happen to our children, so central to our political identity, and yet really inconsistently so. I've been working with the Center for Public Justice on some paid family leave policies. And it's really interesting the ways that we think about family impact how we think what our obligations are to our neighbors politically. Who do we think counts? Who do we think counts as a parent or a caregiver? Who do we think counts in terms of what we, who are we obligated to and who are we obligated to care for? Um, and thinking primarily about not only, again, how we are shaped and formed in our church communities to be better witnesses once we are outside of the church building, but also to have that sense of the reorientation of family alter how we view our next door neighbors. You know, my neighbors on either side of me have little kids that play outside all the time. And I've made it my personal mission in the least creepy way to be their friends. <laughs> and just having that sense of my obligations to other people are not the obligations that maybe the culture around me would just have me believe or the obligations that my family would expect of me. Jesus in that moment saying, you have an you have a sense that my obligation is ultimately to my biological mother and to my brothers. Actually, I'm going to, you know, change that assumption for you. And my obligation is most closely to these people who are in the mission of God with me. Having that reorientation of family, I think should have profound political effects for us. And it's really hard work to do because we have, you know, at this point, a century at least of thinking about family in ways that hasn't been very helpful, I think, especially when it comes to politics. So this brings up an interesting point. In your book, you there was a dichotomy that I saw, and I wanted to see if if we could figure out the, the proper tension. Hmm. You say, wait, let me, I just want to find it in my notes. Um, yeah. So here it is. We often relate to scripture as merely an authority over our brains, thus a source of the right theology, and not as a powerful and living source of authority over our communal moral decisions. Historically, this approach has been the downfall of the church in her most crucial moments. You point out, and being a Jew, we've certainly experienced this. The church has become the tool of oppressive regimes throughout history, including American slavery, the Holocaust, the Pinochet regime in Chile, much of this was made possible by relegating the moral force of scripture to secondary status in favor of spiritualized truths with no application to material realities. So the dichotomy is the, the church is often the reason we've gotten it wrong and, and are, are getting it wrong mm. in many ways today. At the same time, you're saying the solution is to be the church and do church as, as a body of believers. So help, help me reconcile. Yeah. It's a seeming contradiction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the kind of like the easy answer to this that I agree is very unhelpful, but a lot of people do is just to say, well, we're not, we're not doing it right. We should do it the way we're supposed to, <laughs> the way we're supposed to do it. And there is, I say that that's the easy answer, but there really is, there's precedent from the very beginning of the new Testament, right? We have a picture in acts of the church sharing all things in common. It's this like rosy picture. And then you have all the epistles where it's just constantly like, you are not doing this correctly. <laughs> we have a description of like one of the most beautiful descriptions of communion comes in the context of you are actually using this beautiful practice 
to separate your community, to segregate it, to, to reinforce the social dynamics that are already at play. You've taken this thing that was supposed to revolutionize the difference between the poor and the rich and the enslaved and the free, and you've actually just used it to replicate the same ideas, which is one of the biggest tensions of a book that I really love, uh, Lauren Winner's The Dangers of Christian Practice. She goes through the sacraments and prayer, and I think one other one, and kind of shows how each of those has had characteristic deformations, ways in which we have not only sometimes misuse this thing, but actually something inherent in it, there's something really easy within it to um, malform us and to do something really destructive with it. So that's on one hand, like just the constant tension of being the church is trying to look for not only in scripture to look for those exhortations of what not to do, but also hopefully finding in something like Acts 2 a description against which to judge every actual historical example of the church, like a picture of what it should. That's, I think, one of the big roles of, of Revelation is to see not only the destruction of earthly forms of, of domination and power, but also in light of the coming kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and earth, to judge every earthly attempt at that by this standard. But the other thing that I would say is there is a problem a lot of times when Christians throughout history, but American Christians in particular can do this, where we, we understand that scripture has this description that we can judge the church against. But we don't often enough say that there are also human communities on earth because I think of common grace that we can also be judged against. Like the white church in America can be judged against the black church in the civil rights movement. We, we can look to scripture, but we can also look to even um, not even just the black church, but just black, not even black Christians, but just black people who were involved in the civil rights movement, who maybe were very critical, not only of the white church, but of the church in general, who might've said, yeah, look at all of the really destructive things you've done. I'm done with that. We sometimes don't have a sense of, because of the common grace of God, I can look at someone who is not a Christian or is part of a community that is not a Christian community and have that community's, um, goodness and faithfulness actually judge my community. Um, and it doesn't have to be one or the other. We don't have to say either we're judged against scripture or we're judged against other human communities. And it is tricky. I understand why people can be reticent to say, yes, this uh, community center in my community is doing things better <laughs> than my local church. That feels bad. Like that feels like not something that Christians should say. But if we have a sense of not only common grace, but of the Holy Spirit not being bound to our buildings, the Holy Spirit working in ways that we do not expect. In fact, in scripture, the Holy Spirit almost always working among people that we would not choose in places that we would not expect, not only places we would not expect, but probably places that if we were to pick where it would not happen, if we were ever going to say that, that is where the Holy Spirit would be working. Having that ability to recognize the way that other human communities judge the church is important, but having that constant self-reflective in particular communities, that's the other thing. A lot of myself included, people who write about the church is sort of nonsense. There, like, there is on a spiritual level, the whole you know, communion of saints. But anytime we're talking about the failures of the church, we're talking about specific churches, specific institutions, denominations, people who made decisions and our unwillingness to kind of get specific about that and to only talk in really abstract terms about the church is oftentimes how we get in those kinds of situations. So I guess the answer is like, is kind of what I said was the easy answer, which is to say, we're not doing it well, but I think one of the reasons we often struggle to do it well is because we aren't willing to look at all of those different sources, to allow ourselves to be judged by scripture, to allow ourselves to be judged by other human communities and including other Christian communities throughout history and around the world. It's been a frustration of mine 
over the last few years when thinking about race and when thinking about this like fear of being a minority, right? That we keep talking about that no one has ever, I mean, not no one, but frequently we miss the ability to look at churches who have actually experienced persecution, churches who have actually experienced a loss of, of political power or identity or never had it to begin with. The fact that we kind of act as if this is a new thing for us is evidence that we're not looking or we're not willing to look as often at Christian communities throughout the whole world and throughout history that could be sources for us to really learn from. Yeah. Yeah. Hearing you talk about the church, you, you come from a different place than I do. And your your critique of your church or American evangelicalism mm -hmm. comes from a place of having grown up in the church, of, yeah. of really genuinely loving uh, your church yeah. and um, American Christianity, if you will. I came to it much later. So <laughs> my critiques of the church are often like, y'all sold me a bill of goods, <laughs> you, <Yeah. laughs> you know, um, even though this theology, this, this story, if you will, just made such profound sense yeah. on every important level. So I, I'm still married to this, to this story, to this, to this theological set of answers. So I, I love how at one point, I forget where it was, but you were describing, uh, you're, you were doing a Bible study going through the prophets mm -hmm. and how we have these easy answers for what, what they were talking about and it's sin and it's idolatry, but could you describe, you read it in a new way. <laughs> could you describe like some of those revelations that you had? Yeah. So I, I had been working at this church um, in children's ministry for a while. And then I got a new job working with young adults. And my very first decision was we are going to spend something like, I don't know, 15 weeks in Jeremiah <laughs> and the, the people that I was working with thought I was totally crazy. Um, but it was interesting to watch in real time, something that I would have probably suspected before. I, like you said, I grew up in the church. I've seen this stuff. It shouldn't, it wasn't totally a surprise, but to see it really you know, profoundly in front of me, reading passages that talked pretty explicitly about wealth and poverty, about exploitation, about especially exploiting the most vulnerable, about the foreigner and the widow and the orphan, and watching these passages that to me, all of a sudden, especially in the midst of the 2016 and the 2020 election, I think at that particular moment as well in Texas, there was some pretty serious conversations happening about refugees and immigration. We were dealing with COVID stuff, like everything. I don't think COVID had quite hit yet, but there's just so many political questions that felt very profound and in our faces. Those words came alive to me and to a couple other people in my group, but it was such an impulse that had been inculcated in us to look at those passages and translate what seemed like very material things, like material injustice against people, and to translate it into spiritual or kind of interpersonal sense um, to read things about injustice and go, I have lied sometimes to my neighbor, <laughs> which is like, you should, you know, repent of having lied to your neighbor. But it was wild to me that I was, I think, because I was so immersed in thinking about these questions, theologically thinking about politics, reading a lot of what was happening when it came to immigration, when it came to the language that we used to talk about race, when it came to, you know, material conditions for people in our country, feeling like the language and scripture matched it so well and convicted me and felt like it was condemning the communities that I was a part of that were turning a blind eye to what was happening to watch how easily, because that's how we 
read scripture always. We are taught in traditions. We come with certain biases. We come with particular questions or lenses to watch people in my community so easily translate that language that felt so material to just sort of a spiritual or an interpersonal thing. And it was helpful for me not only to recognize that that was happening, but also to recognize that so many of the conversations that I saw happening on social media about theology and politics boiled down to throwing Bible verses back and forth with each other. And someone inevitably at some point saying something like, we can't be reading the same Bible or you can't read the Bible and think X, Y, Z. And it just so highlighted to me, it's what I'm continuing to study now, how much of our interpretation of scripture is communally and culturally conditioned and comes from you know, a particular tradition in a particular place. And to think that we will kind of work out our differences by just pointing out a Bible verse is to ignore the way that humans as finite and fallen creatures, we're never coming with a blank slate. We're never understanding full. I mean, the, the revelation of God to us in scripture is not something we are gonna just naturally understand all of the time as finite and fallen creatures. And so recognizing that we couldn't just work out our biblical theology. We had to work out our biases, our prejudices, our practices of reading communally, the people we were reading with, the context we were reading with, all of those things needed to be examined for us to be able to have a conversation. Because I do think it would be good to say, hey, Jeremiah says this, does that not have some impact on our political life? But we can't do that without examining how are we reading it? What happens in my brain when these words come into it? It's not just a blank slate. There's all sorts of lenses I'm using to translate it. I, I almost envy folks who are of the, I forget exactly how the phrase goes, but it's like, Jesus said it, I believe it, end of conversation, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, but the funny thing is, is I, if, you, if you just go in and quote what Jesus said in some uh, Christian circles, you'd be kicked out for like, get that liberal out of here. Right. I, in fact, uh, I was thinking of a, um, a, uh, an incident where Lisa and I were, my, my wife and I were on this um, retreat with a bunch of uh, uh, people that we were doing Bible study with. And um, the the fellows and I stayed up late one night and uh, we were looking at Acts, the part of Acts that you were referring to. And I'm like, whoa, 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 this looks a lot like communism to me. <laughs> you know, and I wasn't advocating for communism or Marxism, but I'm like, it, it was so communist that these two sold their house and held back a little bit of money and they died on the spot. That's pretty radical, you know? And literally the next morning I was asked to leave the retreat. <laughs> oh gosh. So, so, I mean, I think that sometimes, cause I'm a, you know, I'm a Jew from Jersey. So like some of that Jersey comes out. So that might have, so I guess I'm asking for a little bit of coaching. You clearly are much more, <laughs> you know, with the gentleness and respect part, you know, you, you're clearly better at that. So how, what are some of the ways that you do this when, when you're asking yeah. questions or maybe instigating some conversation or some, some thought, how, how, how do you stay, uh, are there certain rules that you, you try to stay within? Yeah. I mean, one of the best things about the context where this story comes from is that by the time we were dealing with those passages, we were weeks in. And I also had had a relationship with almost everyone in that group for a few years before that. So there was trust built up, um, which I think is huge and underrated. When I, when I wrote this book in 2020, it came out, I had so many like pastors and churches be like, could you come and do this thing with my church? And I did a lot of it. And I think that can be useful, but sometimes I would fear that they wanted me to come in and kind of fix the problem. Yeah. It's and like, I always, do the roar, do the thing. Yes. yes. <laughs> and also kind of like get an outside person to do it. Like yeah. get someone who's not actually affiliated to kind of maybe ruffle some feathers. 
And I always felt like it was, it was an important part of what I was there to say was to say, there's, there's such great limitations on what anyone can do when you say, Hey, we're going to talk about politics on a Thursday night, come to the church. And well, people are coming with their walls up and they're coming with like their weapons drawn. And it's not going to be what maybe you would hope it would be. Whereas if we're six weeks into studying Jeremiah and I have built up trust with these people that we share a pretty similar understanding of scripture in the sense that we think it is an authority in our lives. We think it is the word of God. No one has to, you know, no one can pull out at this point, the kind of, oh, this is CRT or, oh, this is, you know, you're a liberal, whatever. At this point, we've talked about sexual immorality. We've like, I have shown you how much I care about the words of the text. Hopefully it's a little harder at that point to kind of say, you're just importing this because you've seen how much I care about being faithful to scripture. Another part of it that is really not part of my nature, but I have really had to work at is asking clarifying questions in a way that doesn't feel accusatory, but that also allows people to kind of work out for themselves in a way that might expose the tension or the contradiction better than if I just pointed it out in that particular conversation, kind of asking like, well, what do you think it means when it says the foreigner and the widow and the orphan? <laughs> like, what, who, do, who do you imagine? What comes to your mind? What kind of pictures or images or stories come to your mind when you think about that? And then kind of working through when someone pops up with, well, I imagine it's lying to my neighbor. <laughs> okay, well, how does that, like what, you know, what is happening in our minds that that's the response that we get is really, really hard. But I think asking those kinds of questions is, is important. And the other thing I would say is just recognizing that what happens in a particular conversation is not the end of someone thinking about it. Um, I can't tell you how many times in that Bible study, we would have a night that I kind of thought was not a good night. Like I tried to push on some things or ask some good questions and it did not go well. And then two weeks later, I would get a text that was like, I keep going back to this verse. And I think you're right that I have, you know, I have been misinterpreting this, or maybe I didn't even say that. <laughs> maybe, I mean, it really, I do think it all comes down again, a boring answer, but I think it comes down to depending on the guidance of the Holy spirit. Maybe I spent the whole night wanting to say, come on, like, this is what it means. And this is what it means for our life today. And I didn't do it. And then I felt really conflicted later about why I didn't. And then I get a text later from someone that says, okay, I keep thinking about this first. And I think it might have something to do with what our church does with the new refugees that are showing up in Texas, like those kinds of things that I couldn't account for. And my impulse is to think, I know a lot of information. And if I can just talk you into believing with me, then that'll work really well. <laughs> and it has been the hardest, like, I'm thankful for those years doing that in a church now that I'm in a doctoral program and I'm not so intimately involved with like weekly Bible study with people, because I think I'm in an environment now where we are all really conditioned to think that if we know enough information and we describe it in the clearest possible way, we will just convince people. And what doing that Bible study for years and like weekly working that out with people taught me was ultimately like the best thing for people to see in scripture, what I really believe is there is for me to leave it up to, to the Holy Spirit, to try and be as, as clear of a communicator as I can be and to try and be as faithful as I can be, but to ultimately leave it up for the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is what the Holy Spirit does. Yeah, you're describing a very Jesus-esque approach to these conversations. <laughs> he often asks um, the best questions. You know, why yeah. do you say that I am good? Or what do you say, you know, how do you yeah. follow the law? Or what's the summation of the law? He asks great questions, but what you're also, um, advocating is the relational over the transactional yeah yeah you know as if as if giving that perfect 160 character tweet 
would would convince somebody to wake up yeah. from their ignorance you know and and um speaking of which relational over transactional is very hard to do over twitter yeah <laughs> but you're yeah. you're like you have 35,000 36,000 followers you're you're constantly online engaging that must be a very different approach or are there so what what about rules of the road there how do you do it well in that environment yeah honestly i it Oh, only over the last year have I, I think, kind of clarified for myself what I think I'm doing. And part of it is, as you described, realizing that the work I was doing in this church to me was so much more meaningful and I think impactful than, than what I can do online. But also it's really clarified for me that I think what I am doing online and this podcast, I do the, the Holy Post podcast every other week. What I really think we're doing too, oftentimes is not so much convincing other people um, to kind of come over to my position on something, but instead, hopefully giving language and helping clarify ideas for people who probably are already kind of where I'm at, but hopefully giving kind of that clarification in that language so that they can have those conversations with people in their communities. Um, not because I'm just trying to talk to people who already agree with me, but because I think the medium of Twitter, especially even more than podcasts, but the medium of Twitter is not conducive, as you've said, to convincing people or persuading people. And it doesn't build great relationships over time. And so it's really forced me to, to rethink what I'm doing. I think there are people who really are trying to convince other people um, and they probably are more gifted <laughs> than me, but I have come to a place that it's really shaped what I share and how I share it to think, I'm probably not gonna kind of bring anyone over to my side, but hopefully I can both buy my conversations with people, hopefully, and then also by the language that I use, help people who are in the trenches, in their churches, with their families, trying to not just kind of convert other people or convince them either, but to build good relationships where they can kind of clarify what their position is and how they've gotten there and what their hurts are and why this has been difficult and those kinds of things. It's That, that makes sense. So it's an extension of conversations that you're already involved in, another platform maybe to reach others uh, but with proper expectations, it sounds like. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's that's interesting. I I've tried to, and I'm sure that I'll evolve my own rules over time. But I'm somewhat authoritarian in my own threads. <laughs> so <laughs> I I not the conversations that I enjoy are kind of deep theological conversations yeah. or uh, on politics or so amateur sociological observations, but my threads, I have this rule, I forget exactly how I put it, but basically like nonsense is going to be muted. Uh, lies will be deleted and blocked. And then the types of threats that we saw um, that that'll or, or disinformation, I'll, I'll report that stuff. So I, I just that 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 warning and I, I'm pretty diligent about it, whether it's, yeah. you know, Democratic friends who I have from the entertainment industry or my church friends who sometimes get really uh, vitriolic but it does take tending to. The other thing is, and I might need to get away from this as our platform, as our audience grows, is that I do try to avoid getting in conversations with folks that I don't have an existing relationship with. Yeah. But you're, you're at a point now where, you know, so many folks have read your book and, you know, all followers online and you've written so prolifically. So it, it's hard to have a relationship with every single person that you encounter. So I, I, I give you yeah. a lot of credit. So <laughs> before we wrap up, do you have any questions for me? Yeah. Well, I was thinking earlier when you were talking about becoming a Christian and then having, you know, what is it? 2000, 2001, 2002. I'm just curious, like what, before you became a Christian, what your perception of Christians' political involvement, especially kind of 
moral majority religious right was. And if it, if it did change at all, like it, maybe it didn't, but I could also imagine it suddenly feeling like, do I have to take, do I have to belong to that? <laughs> like, do I have responsibility to that in a way that I didn't before? I'm just curious. I, I, I know what that's like to hear from friends growing up with, but they were all pretty young. You know, even my non-Christian friends growing up watching a lot of that were, were not really at an age where they could have, you know, an intelligent thought about it. Yeah, that's a great question. And it, it's not an answer that I could give just for myself because the answer really pervades across generations mm. of my family, of who we are as people. You know, my grandmother grew up in Chernyostrov in, in uh, Ukraine. It was Russia at the time, but it's Ukraine, or as I refer to it then, the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And it was, the, they suffered through, often at this time of year, right after Easter, they suffered through some of the worst pogroms. And the people that were burning down the houses, beheading her neighbor's parents, uh, raping women, these were the men who were wearing crosses on their chests. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I grew up just one generation removed from that. You know, the other half of my family was from Poland and Romania and Germany. So the Mertics and the Kleinfelds that didn't move in the early part of the 20th century were eviscerated in, in Nazi Germany. And it, whether it's fair or not, or accurate or not, it was the institutional church that either allowed that to happen. They weren't all Karl Barth. They weren't all yeah, Bonhoeffer. Yeah. The institute, the, Bonhoeffer was rebelling against the institutional church. Yeah, you know, so that is our historical, my my um, heritage, my my DNA, uh, in, in my cultural and and religious and and filial DNA. So when I grew up, my parents, I, I was kind of like my parents were very liberal politically. Uh, we were very active religiously. We went to an Orthodox synagogue. But I was more like the Alex P. Key. You're too young to remember family ties. Um, but Michael J. Fox was um, this character where the whole family was very, very liberal. But he was like this conservative business guy, always wearing a tie. And that, that's I had those sort of leanings, that kind mm -hmm. of black sheep of the family leanings. But I still had this perception, hadn't encountered a ton of evangelicals, had only heard about evangelicals for the most part. So my impression was... I'm going to be blunt, but my brother uh, saw a bumper sticker that really sums it up. He says, Jesus may love you, but everybody else thinks you're an asshole. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was my impression. Yeah. But when uh, in my late 20s, when I started hanging out with a bunch of folks that were going to church, uh, that that impression changed. There, again, it's when you have relationships with human beings, mm -hmm. you can't afford your prejudices. Uh, and And those relationships led to new questions that I had, new ways to examine questions that I was grappling with throughout mm -hmm. my 20s. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, it was quite an epiphany or a set of epiphanies over the course of uh, a couple seasons when I was wrestling with this stuff. And it was a, a, a gift to be able to come across C.S. Lewis's, uh, just as one, one example, his, his other work. You know, I'd known about Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, but I hadn't read his theological work. Mm. I hadn't read his apologetics. And then that opened the door to, to authors like G.K. Chesterton and, and um, Malcolm Muggridge, um, other speakers, contemporary speakers that, that really got me thinking. Mm. So that's why after I became a Christian, it was so disappointing to see some of those prejudices confirmed Yeah. again and again and again. Yeah. I always wanted to push back on that. But um, I think 
more often than not, I didn't do it well. I did it obnoxiously. And that's what got, got me kicked out of Bible studies. And <laughs> so I'm in the process of learning how to do it better. In fact, this project is, is sort of, is my exercise in talking politics and religion without killing yeah. each other, just doing yeah. it better. So yeah. I love talking with you. I have so many more questions, but <laughs> I know that you have, uh, you're, you're getting a, P, uh, not a PhD, is it a PhD? A THD. THD. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot mm-hmm. of work to do. So I'm they not going to keep you all day, <laughs> but if you could, can you help us um, tell us where folks can find you online and all the, your book? And I'll, I'll put links to the, to the book and stuff, but you know, how can we find you and, and all the great work that you're doing? Yeah. Um, on Twitter and Instagram at Caitlin Chess and have both links to the book and some other resources. I haven't thought about this in a while, but I still have up on CaitlinChess.com a bunch of um, spiritual practices for it's for an election season, but some of it is about just kind of examining our media consumption habits, which is probably a good thing to do at any time. Um, and you can look way, way in the forward. I just signed a contract to write another book on how we read scripture politically. So a lot of what we've been kind of talking about, but specifically thinking about that in the context of American political history and how scripture has been used or misused. So it'll be a little while before that comes out, but you can, you can anticipate it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The website is great. Um, there's some old blog posts that I was digging through there. <laughs> Um, just there's so much work and I just type in Caitlin Chess uh, and I'll again I'll have links to it in our show notes uh, so that you spell it right and find the right Caitlin Chess um, but uh, yeah it's it's good stuff yeah you just reminded me there's this study that just came out I heard it talked about on a couple different podcasts where um, I think it was a Yale and Berkeley professor who studied news consumption habits and sort of had this control group that continued watching Fox all the time, but then took another group and mm. had them watch other news outlets. And they saw over time that their um, positions and feelings, not completely, but like it yeah. was significant how yeah. certain views uh, augmented over time. So I think a healthy um, news diet, finding good reporters in any number of different outlets, good thinkers in any number of different outlets is a, is a really great step. But uh, anyway, like I said, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> so I really appreciate you taking the time and it's great getting to know you. Uh, next time I'm, I'm in Durham, the, the, yes. the one syllable, Durham. Uh, <laughs> um, I'll, well, I'll have to buy you coffee and uh, Love that. continue the conversation. So yeah, thanks again. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts. And tell a friend about TPNR. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us, politicsandreligion.us. And again, you can support our program through the Patreon app on the site. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.